Our gospel reading this morning is from the 21st chapter of St. John, another story of Jesus' engagement with the disciples after His resurrection. When the disciples had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Simon said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Then a second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And, and he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, tend my sheep. And so he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, at this point, Peter felt hurt because he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And, and he said to him, Lord, you, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and to go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. After this, he said to him, follow me. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning to you, to those of you who are joining us this morning, no matter where you are. God has drawn us together in this particular place and in this very moment, and we are so very, very glad for that. Absolutely loved the song, Shelter Me. Thank you all for leading us in that new song by Michael Jonkus, written, of course, for this particular, during this particular time in our world's history, during this crisis, this pandemic. Also, special welcome to Julie Kenny, one of our seniors who read for us today. Julie is a senior at Salisbury High School, heading to App State next year. She joins a, a good group, a really wonderful group of seniors in high school, and even those in college. We have a group of 20 seniors or so who graduated from college many of uh, this past week, this weekend. And so our very best congratulations to all of them. And, because I just might as well keep going, Hannah Adair, thank you for being here. Uh, in, in a few moments, she's going to sing for us Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah, written by, rewritten by our friend Rachel Kurtz. Um, if you don't mind this little point of personal privilege, I first heard Hannah, I think first maybe, heard Hannah sing this song around seven or eight years ago, right, um, at Gustavus Adolphus Lutheran Church in New York City. It's a beautiful little church in Gramercy Park in New York. Our youth had spent a week there um, sleeping in their fellowship hall. Uh, on their floors to do mission work in that community, uh, we fell in love with that, that place, that space, everything about it. It's a surprisingly little um, historic little place. It was built in the, in the 1880s to serve the Swedish community in New York. In fact, above the altar is this gorgeous, I mean, really stunning painting that had been commissioned by King Oscar II of, of Sweden for that particular place. The crown prince was there to celebrate uh, this, this little church in Gramercy Park. But most, maybe even more significant than all of that, was the memorial service for Dag Hammarskjöld um, was held in this little Swedish Lutheran church. Uh, Hammarskjöld, of course, was the General Secretary of the United Nations who died in an airplane crash in 1961 in, in Rhodesia. I'm just painting a picture, probably more than I need to, of this small little, this beautiful little historic church in New York that has unfortunately, or at least the time that we visited, had 
had sort of been dying on the vine, I guess. There were maybe 25 or 30 people in worship in attendance that Sunday morning that we were there. But above them, literally, in the balcony surrounding the nave of that, of that church were our youth, a group of, I don't know, 30 or 40 kids, um, high schoolers, literally um, just maybe almost doubling the size of the worship attendance that day. They asked if we would sing a song, and we said, why not? As I recall, Chris McNeely had a guitar, and so he played along, and Hannah Adair, who sang that song with the other kids backing her up. The uh, people below were stunned. When it was finished, uh, they stood, looked up, gave a long round of applause. It was one of the most beautiful moments I've experienced. It was stunning. Thank you, Hannah, for being here. Likewise, some of you will be celebrating, and I'll get to my sermon in a minute. Likewise, some of you will be celebrating Mother's Day today, uh, and our very best goes to you. Celebrations, of course, will be different this year, no doubt, but it's important no matter what shape it takes. It's important to give thanks to our, to our moms. Mother's Day, after all, was started at St. Andrew's Methodist Church in West Virginia by a woman who never had children, but who loved her mom and believed that all moms should be celebrated. Her mom had died in 1905, and so in 1908, a few years later, she, she held the first Mother's Day observance, giving away white carnations in her little church uh, to all the mothers who showed up for worship that morning. Now, Jarvis um, continued to champion her cause until just within three years, every state in the nation was celebrating Mother's Day. And by 1914, President, um, President Woodrow Wilson had proclaimed it a national holiday. So happy Mother's Day to you. Now, we are certainly aware and sensitive to the fact that for some folks, it's not an easy day. For some, Mother's Day conjures up um, memories or circumstances that are less than happy, perhaps, and, and may not be worth celebrating. And so we certainly want to lift you up in prayer as well for peace uh, in your journey and in your life. And for some, Mother's Day is just flat-out tricky. Like the man, his wife and his mother-in-law, who went on vacation to the Holy Land. And while they were there, the mother-in-law passed away, and the undertaker told him, you know, you can, you can have her shipped home for $5,000, or we could bury her here in the Holy Land for 150 bucks. The man thought about it for a while, and he said that he'd just have her shipped home. The guy said, okay, we'll do whatever you choose. We'll, we'll, we'll certainly honor your wishes, but help me to understand here. I, we, we, why would you spend $5,000 to ship your mother-in-law home when it could be so incredibly meaningful to have her buried here in the Holy Land for just $150 a month? The man replied, look, Long ago, a man died here, was buried here, and, and three days later he rose from the dead. I just cannot take that chance. <laughs> we just have to have a small laugh here amongst the few of us. I hope others are laughing too. However you are spending today, uh, the, this much is true. We all need mothering figures in our lives. And so today we give thanks for those in your journey who have been a mothering presence for you, inspired and encouraged, of course, by a mothering God. Let's pray. Lord God, may the words of my mouth, the inspiration of our hearts, be acceptable to you, our rock, our redeemer, our savior. Amen. We are in part two of our sermon series on First Peter. 
First Peter happens to be one of the shortest books in the Bible, and yet uh, Martin Luther claimed it as one of the three most important witnesses in the New Testament alongside the Gospel of John and Paul's letter to the Romans. It's a great little book. Last week, we took a look at chapter 1 of First Peter um, and, and what was going around on during the time that, that this letter was written. It's written perhaps by the Apostle Peter, we don't really know, maybe not, maybe one of his disciples, we just don't know, but it's definitely written to a group of Christians in an area that we call Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. These folks represented three different groupings of people. Some were new Christians trying to figure out what it looked like to be a Christian, how to walk as a Christian. Some were feeling pretty lonely, isolated, discouraged, in large part because the church was certainly not, not large in those days. There were not many Christians, and they needed some encouragement just to stick with it. And others, a third group were facing some pretty serious trials in their own lives. Some were facing persecution or some duress of one kind or another. Many of us fall into one of those three categories, don't we? Um, Well, cabin fever sometimes can bring a sense of isolation or lack of purpose or the worries of life that might be pressed upon you, whatever it is, to them and to us, Peter writes, Um, writes this letter, I think, to all of us. And in particular, chapter 1, what we studied last week was this, that by God's great mercy, He has given you another chance. He has given you a new birth because of Jesus Christ who was raised from the dead and who is your hope so that you might be a living hope for the sake of the world. Christ is your hope. That's the gift that is given to you, so that you might be a living hope to others. That's your call, our gift, so that we might be a call. Today, we're going to dive into chapter 2, in which Peter tells us what it looks like to be God's people, to be the church, whether whether we're quarantined at home or fully back to normal, whatever normal means these days. This is what it looks like to be God's People. So I'd love for us to focus in particular on verses 4 and 5. It reads like this Come to him, the living stone. That means Jesus, right? Jesus is the living stone, the foundation stone, the, the cornerstone. Though he has been rejected by mortals, we know that, right? We've gone through the whole experience of Holy Week and and Easter, a man who was betrayed, stripped, beaten, executed, who was literally rejected by us, yet throughout precious and chosen in God's sight. So, like, therefore, living stones, now he's talking about you and me, right, as we reflect this ultimate Jesus, this living stone, and we value what Jesus values as we reflect what Jesus, the life of Jesus in your own life, then as we become living stones, then we will be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. So, what does it mean to be the church? Well, before we answer that question, I want you to step aside for a few moments at least. I want you to step aside from everything that we've been conditioned to believe or what we think we know about the church. Don't define it in terms of a sanctuary or a a, a building, a physical structure, or even a name or a denomination. Set all of that aside. Don't think of it in terms of the church's history, the good and the bad, of course. Set aside the images of elaborate cathedrals or the memories of crusades or of holy wars. Set aside your baggage even about the church. Peter was thinking about none of that. He had none of that, those images or stories or history in mind, none of it. 
Peter says this. The church, the church is a group of people, people, not structures, people, who follow the living stone, Jesus, in such a way that they become living stones here on earth. In other words, to be the church means to be like Jesus, to be a group of sisters and brothers who are bound and determined to be a reflection of Jesus in what we say and in what we do, to love like Jesus, to forgive like Jesus, to extend mercy like Jesus, to be a living hope for the sake of the world. And here's the deal. When we are not that, we are not the church. It's that simple. When we are not loving, when we are not welcoming to all, when we are not forgiving, when we are not caring, when we are not hospitable to the stranger, when we are not willing to to offer a second chance to someone who has fallen, when we are not willing to help pick up uh, the pieces of someone's broken life, then we are not the church because we're not reflecting the life of Jesus. We're not reflecting what matters most to Jesus. According to 1 Peter, that's what matters more than anything else. For God's church to be living stones in this world, in your community, in your neighborhood, in your home, in your schools, wherever you have been placed, to be living stones, living places of of memory, of reflection of who Jesus is in this world when we are then we become a spiritual house. Then we become God's home, God's oikos, God's church, where God dwells in love and peace and joy. There's a little boy who forgot his lines in a Sunday school presentation. His mother was in the front row, and she was trying to prompt him, you know, trying to help him out a little bit. She gestured, and, and she formed the words very silently with with, his, with, with her lips, he was so confused. He couldn't figure it out. He couldn't understand her. His memory was blank. Finally, she just leaned forward, and she whispered the cue, I am the light of the world. And the little boy beamed, and with great feeling, and with a loud, clear voice, my mom is the light of the world, <laughs> which is precisely what Peter says the church is called to be, a light that reflects the light of the world. Living stones that reflect the living stone. A living hope that reflects our great hope for the world, Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be the church. That's what God calls us to be. That's the what the world desperately needs us to be. May we forever strive to be just that. Amen.